Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 32 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday, September the 8th. And Leon, this week we're talking to Tony Falkenstein. That's right. Tony Falkenstein is the chief executive of New Zealand-based listed company Just Water International, and he's going to be talking to us about how his firm had pioneered the water cooler industry and has been leading the Australasian market ever since. Yeah, doing really well. And then after that, we've got a really fascinating chat with Saul Eslake on what politics is doing to economic planning, I think. And uh, what politics is doing to the markets. Yeah, causing some concern. Anyway, let's listen to Tony Falkenstein. Tony Falkenstein, uh, tell us about Just Water and your beginnings as a company. Well, the company started uh, 30 years ago and uh, basically we, we, we rented fax machines. That was the uh, big growth product at the time. And a couple of years later, we were looking for another product that we could rent. And, uh, and we'd seen water coolers on sitcoms, US sitcoms, so we decided we'd do that. Um, and so we took a model. We knew nothing about water at all, but we just saw it as an office product. So whereas other companies everywhere around the world, they uh, they had bottling plants, we rented out the water cooler and a bottle and a piece of hose and a filter, and they made their own water. And uh, and it took us till 2001 before we bought a bottle bottled water plant. But even now, probably about 30% of our business in the B2B market is what they call point of use. So the water is taken from the tap through a filter, and then comes out of the water cooler. So it's like a water cooler with no bottle on top. The other 30% is bottled water delivery. So basically uh, what you're doing is you're, uh, say, delivering chilled drinking water to businesses throughout New Zealand and Australia. Is that right? Yeah, we sold our Australian subsidiary uh, two years ago, and we now we now just do it in New Zealand. Um, it's both business to business, and, I mean, the big growth area for us is in the domestic market. So, uh, so that's high growth is there, while the B2B market is fairly mature. Virtually every every company has a water cooler now. So you're selling to domestics, domestic market, basically. Yeah, the model for domestic is that we actually put the water cooler in for free, and they uh, and they just pay for the water that that they use. But on, on average, they use 2.6 bottles uh, per month, which is about forty dollars per month. And uh, and and our research has shown that the consumption of uh, of soft drinks goes down dramatically. Well, it's intriguing because, uh, I mean, Coca-Cola, Amatil over here, is, uh, they're actually looking at lower profits because people are moving away from uh, fizzy drinks and sweet drinks and they're moving now more to water. So you're on a winner there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think people are a lot more aware and it's definitely in the, in the low to mid socioeconomic group. They know that they shouldn't be drinking as much Coke. And what happens when a water cooler goes in, the kids come in from playing and they want, they want a consumption of a beverage immediately. And to go to the fridge, take the Coke bottle out, unscrew the cap, pour it into a glass, too hard. So to go to a water cooler, press the button and get their water and out they go again. That's pretty amazing. Now, so, we're, so domestic is your big growth area. Where do you see it expanding to? Well, we see that... Um, expanding at a much faster rate than businesses. And then we're also another export products. We export a 10 litre cask of water. So like the old wine casks, we, we export them to China. And we've just launched a, uh, a non-alcoholic liqueur, which we're marketing globally through uh, duty-free stores. Uh, it's a non-alcoholic liqueur, uh, and the base is manuka honey and ginger. So it tastes like liqueur, but has no, um, no alcohol in it. But if you do add it can also be a mixer. So if you add vodka, 
it tastes even better. <laughs> but it's made, and 71% of females in China don't drink, uh, drink don't drink alcohol. So it's made for the Chinese market, but really the Chinese traveller. So there are 135 million uh, Chinese are travelling uh, each year, and so we're putting in duty free. And it means they can uh, do taste do tastings in the morning when the Chinese flights arrive, which they can't do with alcoholic products. Tony, well, what's your sales pitch apart from the King C. Gillette idea of you get a free fountain? Uh, do you promote the purity, the health and uh, the anti-sugar aspects? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're selling health. So we go out, we're, we're selling health. We show, we show how much sugar is in. We have bags of sugar showing on stands, which show how much is in each, uh, you know, in Coke and various various soft drinks. So you're actually taking the company global all the way f- from New Zealand. You're actually global now. Well, in effect, yeah, I suppose so. Um, I mean, Manuka honey is like a brand for the Chinese uh, and and being a healthy product. So so what we've got here is a, um, is a healthy product. I, I could have shown you in one of the other rooms. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's both a healthy product. 71% of females don't, of Chinese females don't drink alcohol. They like a status product. They're very gift-giving uh, culture. So all those things uh, make sh- you know make it a just a, a good product for uh, for duty free. Obviously, innovation is quite a major factor at Just Water. Is that right? Yeah, we in, we encourage um, innovation, and you know we have a very innovative culture. It's always hey, is there a better way of doing anything? And and that can be both in our processing and and everything that we do. You know, I can give an example of one time, and this okay, it sounds as though it's just me, but it's it's right through the company. But we um, we used we service the water coolers, so you can imagine with uh, with thirty thousand water coolers, we have about sixty thousand services a year. And the girl who was doing the servicing used to send up a sheet, and we we entered that into the computer with the customer's name, saying that we'd serviced it on such and such a date. So there was always, uh, you know. Uh, a big pile of these service sheets coming in every day and they're always behind in terms of loading them and so I heard this call and the girl on customer services was saying no we uh, we serviced your caller on uh, such and such a date and guy said no it's definitely not it definitely wasn't and so I asked her I said how often does that happen oh, all the time you know we service it they're probably out on the day it was serviced they don't know and uh, they keep on complaining we have to send out and do a free service so I said well let's Let's just say put a, put the uh, sheet on the on the water cooler, and they sign off on there. When a customer rings up saying it hasn't been serviced, say, "Well, listen, can you help me? Can you just look on the water cooler, see when it was last serviced?" And what happened from that? Normally, uh, they'd come back. Oh, I see, I can't have been there. And you know, we a couple of uh, units of labour we didn't need anymore. Tony, <coughs> do you leverage the sort of image of New Zealand as a source of uh, clean water, clean food and uh, open skies in your sales pitch? We do on the we do on the cask. In fact, I don't know, can you can you see it? That's a cask of yeah. water. Right. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That looks great. Nice mountain. I never went to school near there. So, so we definitely uh, do it on that for for China in term in terms of uh, the Manuka honey product, which is called Malambra Gold. Uh, we're very much, uh, um, we look as though we're an American company using, using product from New Zealand. We try not to say we're a New Zealand company, only because Americans tend to like their own. So we ship X, XLA rather than ship from New Zealand. So we have a, uh, <coughs> a third-party warehouse in, uh, in LA, and we ship straight from uh, LA. Right, right. So, so there is your purification process that um, 
gives you the result. Well, no, I mean, we send, we ship the product into LA and we hold it there, and then when we take orders, we ship it straight to wherever it needs to go, okay. either so, in Europe or the US. So the Americans think they're getting it from America and not from New Zealand? They an American company, but they know it's New Zealand uh, New Zealand product, New Zealand manuka honey and ginger. Well, that, okay. that's that's quite intriguing, and uh, that's all, all the best for you. Uh, that, that sounds terrific, Tony. Thank you very much for your time. No, thank you. So there you are, Leon. Money and water. Money and water, and it was a. He, it was actually interesting how he created a niche. Yes. And uh, made a lot of money, and it's just it's just a lesson for people looking at businesses and what their secrets are. Yeah, and often it's the oddest thing that makes them big success. That's right. Yeah, and now Saul Leslie. So, Les Lake, the markets uh, responded strongly to the North Korean missile launch, America's response to that. We seem to be in an era where geopolitical events are shaping markets. Uh, what's your view about that? Yes, they are, although at the time we're speaking, of course, the US has had a long weekend and the missile test or the nuclear bomb test occurred after the US markets had closed on Friday evening, Saturday morning, our time. And we're still to see what reaction the US markets will have when they open. More broadly, of course, markets have had to think about geopolitical factors, but I'd say from a longer term perspective, it's interesting that markets haven't responded as violently to what some people describe as closer to a renewal of military hostilities on the Korean Peninsula than we have been for more than 60 years, as sharply as they did, for example, to the build up to the first Gulf War in 1990 or the uh, second Gulf War in 2003-04. Of course, there are many more things that could happen between now and an outbreak of military action if that were to occur. So perhaps we should hold back on that judgment. But it does seem, for example, that oil prices and other commodity prices haven't responded in the way that they would have done in the past to the threat of war in the Middle East and um, other commodity prices and financial markets more broadly have so far at least taken things fairly much in their stride. Uh, it's interesting because 10, 20 years ago the big mover of markets was the oil price. Now it seems to be responding though more to geopolitical events. We've had issues like uh, uh, the Brexit talks flailing around. We've got uh, issues like Donald Trump threatening to shut down the US. And the markets have responded all the time to that. I mean, what's your view about that? History tells us that markets respond strongly to outcomes that they hadn't expected. So markets are always looking forward, trying to make a judgment as to what they think will happen, and they price what they perceive to be the most likely outcome. So if that is what happens, there's usually not much movement. If something happens that markets hadn't expected, then you'll get a bigger response. And that was the case both with the Brexit referendum and the Donald Trump election victory in November last year. In the case of Brexit, the markets had anticipated, as opinion polls had foreshadowed, that Britons would vote to stay in the European Union. Instead, as it turned 
turned out they voted to leave and the result was a very sharp fall in sterling and at least initially also a fall in the British share market as financial markets factored in what they thought would be the adverse economic consequences of Britain voting to leave the European Union. Sterling has stayed down and indeed over the last couple of months has begun to weaken further as markets have given more weight to what seems increasingly to be Britain's fairly weak negotiating position with the EU over things like the bill Britain will have to pay to settle its remaining debts to the EU and the terms on which, if at all, it will have ongoing access to the single market on continental Europe. The share market, by contrast, recouped a lot of its immediate post-Brexit declines, partly because the fall in sterling enhanced the earnings prospects of internationally oriented listed British firms, but also because in foreign currency terms, British assets had become much cheaper. So uh, what we've seen in the British share market, I guess, is a correction in sterling terms, but in US dollar or euro terms, the British market has performed far less impressively from an investor's perspective than, for example, the US market or the European or Japanese share markets. Similar forces were at work with last year's US presidential election. Investors had expected, as opinion polls had foretold, that Hillary Clinton would win. So when Trump actually turned out to be the winner, markets hadn't anticipated that. And they then thought, especially given Trump's surprisingly conciliatory and statesmanlike remarks once his election became clear the morning after the American people had voted, they worked on the assumption that Trump as president would implement policies that would in turn lift America's economic growth performance, such as substantial deregulation and cuts in corporate taxes, whilst they also assumed that he wouldn't do some of the things he talked about during the election campaign that would harm economic growth, such as declaring a trade war with the US's biggest and third biggest trading partners, China and Mexico. And that propelled a rise in the US dollar, a rise in long-term US interest rates, bond yields, and a very substantial increase in the US share market. Since about April, however, the bond market and the currency market have become increasingly sceptical of whether Donald Trump's administration will actually boost US economic growth in any long-term sustainable way. So we've seen bond yields and the US dollar give up most of the gains they made in the months immediately after Trump's election. The share market, by contrast, still remains very keen on Donald Trump. And although it's wobbled a few times in the last couple of months in including as a result of increased tensions with North Korea. Uh, Nonetheless, it's for the most part held on to its post-market gains and post-election gains. That could also, of course, partly reflect the slide in the US dollar since April, which has made US assets cheaper in foreign currency terms, so that in US dollar terms, they actually haven't fallen all that much. But obviously, we'll have to see how market sentiment towards the Trump administration evolves over the weeks and months ahead. Uh, But I would expect that uh, with Donald Trump 
doing things like foreshadowing trade uh, sanctions against uh, all those who cooperate with North Korea, meaning China, markets will respond to that. Well, they will if he does something. And this is the interesting thing about Trump so far is that while there's been a lot of bluster and a lot of tweeting and a lot of exclamation marks and believe me's and we'll see's, uh, Trump is remarkably sparse of genuine legislative achievements. And for example, he, before the election and immediately after it, was saying that he'd declare China a currency manipulator, which in turn, under existing US legislation dating back to the 1960s, would give his administration the power to impose tariffs of up to 45% on everything that China sells to the United States without requiring any legislation by Congress. But he hasn't done that. Likewise, he hasn't really taken any action against Chinese exporters of products that Trump has long said have been recipients of unfair or illegal subsidies and other forms of assistance from the Chinese government. He may well think that if he's able to impose tariffs that would raise the price of goods bought by low-income households and used by other US manufacturers, which would in turn legitimately be the subject of considerable criticism, that he might get less criticism if he can say he's imposed these measures for reasons of national security as a way of dampening down any question of the logic behind them. But so far, as I say, he hasn't done that. And to use the Korean situation as an excuse to impose uh, tariffs on imports from China would, I think, be a step to which markets would react very badly. So generally, you would say that this response of markets to geopolitical forces is generally just a response to the unexpected. We just wait and see what how, how it pans out. Is that real view? I think that's broadly right, yes, that markets don't expect for the time being any outbreak of military hostilities if that were to occur, especially given that the outcome uh, would be far less certain than, for example, it was safe to assume at the beginning of the first Gulf War in the early 1990s. Then markets could go through a period of very considerable uncertainty and again, history suggests that markets hate uncertainty and that there would potentially be some significant consequences financial markets if, uh, first of all, military hostilities broke out. Uh, secondly, if military conflict persisted for a long period of time. And thirdly, of course, if it looked as though the outcome from a US perspective was not as good as Donald Trump has assured everyone it would be in those circumstances. So, like thank you very much for your time. That's been a pleasure as always. Thank you. So what do you think, Leon? Well, obviously, geopolitics is actually shaping the market in very big ways. I mean, I've noticed that not only share prices, but gold has gone through the roof. It's now the gold is the sum of all fears. Indeed. It's, uh, I wish I had more of it. That's right. Like uh, maybe some of it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, the news. Leon, what do you got? Well, Gary, the Australian energy market operator has warned that Australia faces more blackouts over the next 10 years with the retirement of older coal-fired power stations and renewables not plugging the shortfall. The AMO report said a lack of wind to fuel renewable generation or the loss of a thermal power plant occurring at the same time would see increases in demand during the peak air conditioning months, leading to power cuts in the wind-dependent states of South Australia and Victoria. Increasing renewable energy, such as wind and solar, would help boost generation over the next four years and ease the risk of power outages from 2018 to 2019 in South Australia and Victoria, with more rooftop solar power 
panels, greater energy efficiency and more large-scale wind and solar farms. The report warns that the closure of AGL Energy's 2,000-megawatt Liddell power station in New South Wales in 2022 would add to the risks. The report is a warning that the grid needs more generation to reduce the risk of supply interruptions, particularly over the hot summer months when it's under greater stress. And it comes at a time when the federal government is looking to set a clean energy target beyond 2020 to encourage investment in stable and affordable power supplies. The Financial Review reported that the Turnbull government secured an in-principle agreement from AGL to sell its uh, Liddell coal-fired power station in New South Wales to another operator who was willing to keep it operating for at least another five years beyond a scheduled closer in 2022. And AGL subsequently issued a statement saying, no, that's not true. And since then, we've learned that the AEMO report is not uh, gospel, that uh, it's an error. And furthermore, that Andy Vesey, who's the head of AGL, has got a lot of plans and has no intention of selling little. Not at all. Very bad for him and for AGL if he does. So that's right. They want to get out of coal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think everybody agrees with them. Yep, indeed. Now, the Reserve Bank of Australia, as widely expected, has kept the cash rate at the low of 1.5%. Tuesday marked the 12th straight meeting where the RBA had opted to keep interest rates steady. RBA Governor Philip Lowe was upbeat about the way the economy was tracking, noting that employment growth had been stronger in recent months and had been increasing in all states. And he said, while wages growth remained low, and that was expected to continue for some time, he said, strong conditions in the labour market should see some lift in wages growth over time. And while the property market, an area of intense focus for the RBA, continued to vary across the country, he said there were signs that the heat was coming out of the market. But the consensus is that uh, that cooling is going to take quite a while to get through. I think so too. It's not going to happen overnight. Now, GDP figures came out and it marks Australia's longest, the longest period of growth in the world. Australia was last in a recession in 1991 and I mean Brian Adams was in the charts at that time. Now the latest GDP figures showed Australian economy strengthened in the June quarter, boosted by a jump in exports and a surge in government investment spending. Gross domestic product rose 0.8% from the previous three months when it grew 0.3% according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And from a year earlier, GDP rose 1.8% compared to the previously estimated one7 gain in the June quarter and economists had forecast growth of 0.9% and 1.9% respectively. But that's pretty good growth. Now, Australia's current account deficit has doubled to $9.6 billion, driven by a sharp fall in the trade surplus. The wider surplus, up $4.8 billion, was on the back of lower export commodity prices for the key exports of iron ore and coal. The Australian Bureau of Statistics figures showed the volume of exports rising 2.7%, and that was largely driven by a jump in resource exports, rising 3.9%. And this increase was right across the board. The only exception were coal exports, which fell 6.8% on the back of disruptions created by Cyclone Debbie. When you think about it, extreme weather is very much a major factor in the world at the moment so pity texas and florida particularly basically you have to think uh, does anybody not believe that climate change is at work i think so well it mightn't cause it but it certainly intensifies absolutely now australian consumer confidence has risen risen again but people are concerned about their personal finances the anz roy morgan consumer confidence index crept up 0.5 percent last week following the 3.9 percent rise the previous week households views towards current financial conditions fell two percent that's partially unwinding the previous week's 4.7% rise and feelings about future financial conditions slipped 1.7%. 
following the 6.4% rise the week before. And new views about both current and future economic conditions are now running below long-run averages. It is very much a worry, and when you look at the growing inequality in uh, salaries and wages, it's um, quite serious. And that will affect the economy because it means people will be spending less. They're already doing that, you know. That's right. Now, in another sign, the labour market conditions are strengthening. Australian job advertisements rose for the sixth consecutive month. The ANZ Job Advertisement Series posted a 2% rise, taking the level of job advertisements 13.3% higher than they were a year ago. And in trend terms, job ads rose 1.3% in August, following a 1.4% rise in July. And annual trend growth has risen from 11.6% in July to 12.5% in August. And that bodes well for the labour force figures. Now, housing affordability has declined in the second quarter and the worst place was in, not surprisingly, New South Wales. The latest Adelaide Bank REIA housing affordability report showed that New South Wales is the least affordable state with a proportion of income required to meet loan repayments increasing to 38%. That's that's about 40% of your income has to go on loan repayments. That's that's up 1.9 percentage points over the quarter and 0.5 percentage points compared with the corresponding quarter in 2016. Yeah, well, I think it means that there's going to be a lot of jam sold because people will be living on bread and jam. That's right. And in New South Wales, the proportion of income required to meet loan repayments is 6.6 percentage points higher than the nation's average. But indeed, look, across the country, the report found the proportion of medium family income required to meet average loan repayments had increased 0.2 percentage points to 31.4 percent. So in other words, 31.4 percent, that's a third of incomes now going to meet low repayments across Australia. They're far too high. Now, US media giant CBS has moved closer to acquiring Network 10 with the network informing the market that the refinancing part of the transaction had been completed. 10 confirmed that CBS provided a loan of approximately $142.7 million to refinance a secured debt, which included shareholder guarantee fees for Lachlan Murdoch, Bruce Gordon and James Packer. And as part of the refinancing, CBS also provided a working capital facility of $30 million. And in a statement, Ted Administrators Cordamentha said employers, secured creditors, general creditors and key content providers who remain with 10 would receive $0.100 cents in the dollar on money owed. Financial, statutory and other creditors will receive $0.34 cents in the dollar, while onerous and terminated contracts, excluding Fox, will receive $0.10. Cents. And Cordamentha said it was working with Murdoch Control 21st Century Fox to negotiate a content supply agreement, but said Fox would receive a one-off payment of up to $3.4 million against claims debts if an agreement can't be reached. Now, creditors will meet in Sydney on September the 12th to vote on a deed of company arrangement, which will transfer ownership to CBS subject to Foreign Investment Review Board approval. And if creditors approve, Cordamentha will then apply for court approval to transfer all the 10 shares over to CBS as part of the transaction. And of course, last week, CBS emerged as the next owner of 10 when it entered into a binding agreement to buy the broadcaster's business and assets, which includes 10, Digital Channel 10, 11, 1, and Digital Platform 10 Play, and that stymied plan by Lachlan Murdoch and Bruce Gordon, who was seen as leading contenders to acquire the network. Yeah, and all of that's going to cause what I think will be a seismic shift in video industry in Australia. Oh, certainly in the TV industry, certainly yeah. in the TV, and, and of course in the video streaming. Yeah. CBS is planning to set up their own video streaming business in Australia as well, and that's going to compete with Netflix and Stan. Yeah, and CBS has got very, very deep pockets and loads of content. Now, lawyers... 
for the Commonwealth Bank of Australia and Austrac have told the federal court the regulator's case against the bank for failing to comply with anti-money laundering laws will be highly complex, likely to run for a lengthy period. And the bank won't lodge its defence until up before Christmas. But it's warned each of Austrac's 174 allegations will involve what they call a mini-trial of its own. And at the same time, the CBA board is going through massive upheaval. The bank confirmed that Rob Wickfield, a director of New South Wales Treasury Corporation until recently Secretary of the New South Wales Treasury, has been appointed to the board as a non-executive director effective immediately. Whitfield, who some see as a replacement for outgoing CBA Chief Executive Ian Narev, has expensive, extensive experience in banking. He served as a former head of Westpac's Institutional Bank, as a former Group Treasurer and Chief Risk Officer of uh, Westpac, and they said he was going to take over from Gail Kelly when she left back in 2015, but that job, of course, went to Brian Hart. And so he left, uh, he left the bank after that. Now, as part of the board's shake-up, Lorna Inman and Harrison Young will retire from the CBA board after the November annual meeting. And Andrew Mole, who's been on the board for nine years, will serve one more year before he too retires. Yeah, it's basically going to be a complete clean-out of the top two or three decks of the bank, isn't it? That's right. And so it needs, yes. Now, about a week after it collapsed, embattled surfware retailer Surf Stitch could be restructured and trading on the AC again. Administrators received a confidential proposal on Tuesday morning before the first Surf Stitch creditors meeting at the company's headquarters at Burley Heads on the Gold Coast. And the deed of company arrangement would see the company relist on the assets and not go into liquidation. Now, Administrator John Park from FTI Consulting said the administrators had received the proposal from, in his words, someone who's been involved with Surf Stitch. He refused to say whether it had come from co-founder and former chief executive Justin Cameron or any other top of managers who are now creditors. Now, of course, Mr. Cameron quit the company last year, 18 months after it floated to weigh up a private equity-backed uh, privatisation bid. Now, Surf Stitch is regarded as one of the big, biggest stock market failures of recent times. Its shares were suspended in May after falling to just 6.8 cents following a series of earnings downgrades, well under its 2014 issue price of a dollar. In November 2015, the stock traded a record high of $2.09. Also, the firm faced uh, litigation. Law firm Quinn Emanuel launched a class action on behalf of shareholders who invest- investors were wiped out by the collapse of the share price. And that was followed up in June by law firm Gaidens hitting Surfsitch, launching its own cl- over-, over disclosures before and after its float. And this came on top of the Crown Group launching legal action against Surfstitch last year over a failed content deal with Mr Cameron. And of course, ASIC has been investigating Surfstitch's market disclosures, so it hasn't been good. Hadn't been good at all. Big storm at sea. That's right, but uh, they could be trading on the ASX again because of that, that change. Interesting. And that's it for this week, Gary. And next week, we've got a terrific interview with Tony Loxton. And that's it for us this week. You can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZZ or on Facebook. Take care, and we look forward to talking to you next week.